This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes, your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an America First perspective. Our nation's leading institutions in government, the courts, and the media have become increasingly incompetent and corrupt and even overtly hostile to our nation's traditions and history. This has left patriotic middle Americans to doubt our nation's future and struggle to understand how we got here and and really wonder if we can indeed make America great again. Our guest today is Victor Davis Hansen. He's a professor emeritus at Cal State Fresno and senior fellow of the Hoover Institution. He's authored a new New York Times bestseller titled The Case for Trump. You can buy the book at Walmart, both online and in their stores. Uh, VDH, in my opinion, is our most articulate and insightful defender of Trump and the deplorables. And we're extremely honored to have him right now. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Your book makes a very readable argument on why middle America shocked the world and seized on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to elect a true outsider to the presidency. Uh, speak to that, if you would. Yeah, I don't think people quite recognize what we did in 2016. We elected the first person without either military or political experience that was considered to have no chance of winning the nomination. And if he did, less chance of defeating uh, all of the money and resources of Hillary Clinton and even less chance of governing effectively. And yet, after two years, he's done all three of those. And that is by itself almost a referendum, not just on conventional wisdom, but maybe on the establishment itself, which was not able to obtain 3% GDP in over 10 years or wasn't able to translate strategic uh, tactical victory in Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria or Libya and their strategic advantage or just more or less told us to get used to China taking over the world and that free trade was sacrosanct, even if it wasn't fair. And it kind of written off the interior of the country. And then this guy came in and said, that's establishment quackery. That's not true. We can, our fate's in our hands. And that was very appealing to people, especially where the election was going to be decided in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Iowa, North Carolina. Well, you know, I'm sort of uh, from uh, that class of people that uh, came to be known as the deplorables. And I remember in the run-up to the election, uh, the circles that I ran in um, never bought into the uh, the notion that uh, Hillary Clinton was going to, you know, just trounce Donald Trump and that he didn't stand a chance. And we weren't that surprised when he won. Did, do you think that they were just deceiving us with her invincibility or if they actually believed that? No, they did believe it. And remember, on the night of the election, the New York Times quoted uh, a variety of analytics and polls across the political spectrum that said he had less than a 10% chance of winning that night. 
And what saved me is that although I work at the Hoover Institution, I'm around intellectuals and academics. I live on a farm where I'm speaking today out in the San Joaquin Valley. And I noticed things in blue California that is in the red interior of that state. I saw people that I that had no business voting for Trump. I mean, they were Hispanics. They were middle-class housewives. They were, uh, you name it. They weren't just all uh, working-class, white, disaffected, and they were going to vote for Trump. And I thought to myself, if a third of these people, that nobody, what's going to happen if people like them in key states, whether it's, you know, Wisconsin or Michigan, where it's going to be decided. And then I spent, I teach at Hillsdale College every September, and I noticed that of the three elections I had seen there, uh, the, the 2004, 8, and 12, I had never seen a response of rural Michigan people like that. Uh, you know, you could see bumper stickers, signs. And then when I would report back to people at Stanford who were more uh, qualified as pollsters, very sophisticated pollsters, I might add. I said, something's going on here. The rallies are huge. They're enthusiastic. He's getting stronger. Hillary's getting weaker. Anything that doesn't kill him makes him stronger. They kind of patted me on the head. So I thought he could win. I really did. But you're right. I think most people really believe genuinely that he had no chance. And that helped him because, remember, she went down to Georgia and Arizona to, to run up the tally, she thought and get a mandate while he was like a fox in the hen house poaching uh, these blue states of the Midwest. You know, I see a lot of parallels between you and Trump. You're both accomplished and successful. Uh, He obviously in business and you uh, in academia, but you both sort of come from that muscular uh, tradition of work uh, that you speak about. Uh, He in the construction field and you in agriculture, and you've both swam against the tide of of the um, uh, the cultural and coastal elites, that cannot have made yeah. life easy for you either. Uh, well, you know, it didn't in academia. I mean, I've lost a lot of friends, a lot of people that I knew very well in the East Coast, especially, you know, people at National Review, Commentary Magazine, or all of the Never Trumpers I knew well, a lot of my colleagues at Stanford. But it had no effect on where I live and the people that I know and like here in the San Joaquin Valley. And they're very practical people. I grew up with them. So I don't know how to put it, but they didn't, I don't want to sound cynical or crude, but the academic world doesn't really have anything I want. I mean, I like, I believe in, you know, university instruction and research and all that stuff, but on a day-to-day basis, it really doesn't, I don't really care all that much if somebody in the New York times doesn't like what I wrote or, some scholar says that I've sold out to Trump or somebody in the Bill Crystal group calls me a Nazi. I mean, I get angry. I reply to it. But in the day-to-day life, I don't, I mean, we don't, my wife and I, we, we don't have friends in cocktail circuit. We just go to the local diner and we have people who are farming. We, most of our friends are probably Mexican-American that grew up with me. So it, it, they had nothing I wanted to be quite blunt about it. Well, if uh, Bill Crystal's not saying bad things about you, you know you're doing something wrong. But, um, <laughs> you know, I understand. There's a logic to that. I, yeah, oh, no I doubt. I understand why uh, the ruling elites despise Trump. You know, he, he sort of betrayed them. Uh, he provokes them by skewering their sacred cows. Uh, but how did they so come to despise middle America? They seem to be, you know, uh, 
from Hillary Clinton's deplorables content, which uh, Middle America wears as a badge of honor now. Uh, but there's been sort of a a, a war on uh, Middle America and our histories and traditions that seems to have escaped uh, from the campuses. Yeah, you know that, that's a large part of the book, and it wasn't just the deplorables. Predated that, you remember it was my gosh, it was Peter Strzok saying that Walmart stunk in his text to Lisa Page. It was uh, Obama with the clingers. It was John McCain with the crazies. And I think it, it was two reasons. One was they really felt that globalization had hollowed out and it had to a lot, the industrial manufacturing sector. And then they confused cause and effect. And they thought, well, because these people are not doing well, they either deserve their fate or they're not doing well because it's their own fault. And the idea that Chinese asymmetrical trade or trade with Asia, Europe, Europe was not symmetrical. They just didn't buy into it, but they blamed the victims, so to speak. And then second, like, as you allude to, they, they don't, they've never been to Bakersfield. They've never been to Youngstown. They don't know people in this area of the Midwest. They, they're granite counters or wood floors. They're arugula. They're table grates. They're wine. They don't know the people who produce that or truck it into the cities. And they have kind of a benign contempt for them. And so then they bought into this change. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's benign contempt or not, uh, Professor. I heard one of the um, luminaries in the never Trump world uh, ridicule deplorables for having bad teeth. And he seemed totally unaware. No, they didn't. That That Mr. Caputo at CNN. You're absolutely right. He was at a rally and he pointed to a person. So that person has more teeth than everybody. I don't mean benign in the in their intent, you're absolutely right. There's a viciousness about the intent. But what I meant was, I don't think it has, uh, it doesn't have a great effect. And we've learned that for all, take the example of the never Trumpers, for all that vitriol, Trump got the same percentage of Republican voters as did McCain and Romney. So what I meant by benign is that it wasn't able to hurt Trump. And maybe with the independent voter, maybe not. It doesn't mean that they weren't, they didn't intend to hurt him, but they really showed the country they're pretty irrelevant. And this demography of destiny that Obama pushed and Hillary did, that were identity politics and were uh, tribal and the way we look superficially is who we are, not the content of our character. And the white middle class is doomed. You know, when you, you read all this, white privilege, white privilege, then you look at the actual demographics, it's still 70% white country, and if you're going to demonize the 70% majority, you've got to figure a way out to win. And Hillary inherited all of the downside from Obama, the, uh, you know, alienating the so-called clingers that she rebranded the deplorables, but she didn't inherit the upside because she was not able to get the minority vote to resonate to her in a way that another minority did, Obama. And so that's a Democrat's dilemma right now. How do we either restore some of the working white class, and I don't think this current agenda is going to do it, or how do we get record minority turnout and solidarity to vote for people like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Beto, who are leading currently in the polls? Meanwhile, Trump is like a fox. He's in their hen house, and he's poaching Hispanic voters. He's poaching black voters. He's poaching Midwestern voters. And uh, I don't get where they think now – they're going to defeat Trump in 2020 since they haven't learned anything. Well, they seem to think they can just uh, uh, buy the votes with promises, empty promises. I think most people would recognize 
um, you know, for socialism and free stuff. But I, I do want to touch on one thing, uh, you know, this whole idea of deplorables. I wrote an article uh, for American Thinker that uh, was titled Deplorable, Just Unjustly uh, Deplored. And Michael Caputo's comments was were just um, illustrative to me. I, I know some of these people that have got bad teeth. They don't have bad teeth because they want to. It's because they're spending uh, all their money, you know, trying to put a roof over their head and food on the table um, with the meager uh, wages that have been left by globalization. And these people are so unaware of what their um, coastal um, prescriptions have done to the middle of the country um, that they, they feel emboldened to just insult them and degrade them. These are these people who no, insult the earth. Right. You're right. And even their diagnosis was wrong. When that came out, when I was sitting with an academic from Britain at Stanford. He had far worse teeth than anybody I've seen out here in the San Joaquin Valley. <laughs> and then when you have people like Melinda Byerly, a CEO who said that these were garbage people, their roads are full of ruts, their schools are bad, and she's riding from Palo Alto. And if anybody's ever driven in Menlo Park and Palo Alto city roads, they're terrible. And the, and the public schools are being abandoned by the left. They've all sent their kids to new prep schools. And so everything that she indicted, uh, middle America, and when I go to the Midwest, and I do it often, and I see these small communities, I know they're hurting economically, but the people are kind, they're generous, they, they take pride in their communities. When I go to California, where I live, when I go to big cities, I, I don't, I see homeless people. I, I was in San Diego not long ago. There's signs warning about a tuberculosis outbreak. There's a typhus outbreak in Los Angeles. Uh, where I live, where I work at Stanford University, when I commute from my farm, uh, there's homeless people in Winnebago's who park along the Stanford campus. So I don't get the arrogance about their communities that they're so much more stable, and yet they have all the advantages that came in through globalization. Yet culturally and sociologically and politically, they're pretty medieval. There's a wealthy class, and then there's a, a subservient uh, class that cooks their food mows their lawn, changes their kids' diapers, whereas in the mid Middle West, you see, a, even though it's under economic assault, it's oh. traditions of middle-class solidarity are much stronger. You mentioned the Middle Ages there. You're a, a professor of the classics, uh, a doctor. Um, I, I see certain parallels between uh, where we are now and um, the Dark Ages after the fall of Rome. Um, these... Uh, seem to be the current dark ages seem to be based on leftist pathologies, uh, you know, that are designed to deny reality and send us into some sort of alternate universe. Do you see parallels between um, uh, today and the dark ages? And can we hope for a renaissance? Yeah, I do. Because uh, we're not emphasizing learning. There's this ideology in the dark age. It was the collapse of civilization. And we're seeing that as well. But when you don't have a middle class and you have this very wealthy global elite and then you have a subsidized poor and then the middle class is ridiculed for not having the romance of the poor, but it doesn't have the quote unquote culture of the wealthy. So it's demonized and it's under assault. And they're usually the stewardship stewards of, you know, local schools, hospitals, PTA, Little League. And when you wipe them out or you try to wipe them out, then you get into a two-society, dark-age society. And, and then when people 
don't believe in learning anymore. So if you go to a university, the catalog today are ethnic studies, peace studies, environmental studies, black studies, women's studies, but they're not, you know, the Civil War or they're not Kant or they're not civics, uh, Span- Spanish literature. They're not how to, you know, civics or they're not forensics and speaking. And th- the result is we're turning out these Alexandria you know, Ocasio-Cortez, like honor students, that really don't know anything about history, and they're just ideological, and they just air they're arrogant, but they're ignorant, and it, it, it's starting to filter through the society. As you know, when you get on an airliner or you get on a train or you go to the local Department of Motor Vehicles, you get the impression that the sophisticated society doesn't have enough competent people to run it anymore. And I, it and seems like scary. it's getting worse and worse. It's hard to believe uh, listening to her that. Uh, uh, Alexandria Cor- uh, Cortez has a economics degree from Boston University. It seems like that uh, that institution ought to hang its head in shame. In the short time yeah, we have you're left, right. in the short time we have left, um, I, I know uh, you grew up in the Central Valley there in California, and you continue to work the family farm. Uh, I was out in California in the eighties, and um, you know. In that time, the Golden State truly was the Golden State. Uh, had free college tuition, uh, jobs were plentiful, uh, the place was clean. There was very little in the way of homelessness, or you know, and crime was under control. Uh, has the decline of the Golden State that you grew up in shaped your worldview, and do you see it as a cautionary tale for the rest of America? I do, because it, it was caused really by a, the global wealth that poured into Hollywood finance and especially Facebook, Apple, Google, you know, and what it made, we created a class, and that's where all the universities are, Caltech, UCLA, Stanford, USC, Berkeley. It created an elite that was never subject to the ramifications of their own ideology because they had so, such wealth. So 27% of our state were not born in the United States, and we have the highest uh, poverty rate of all the states. We have the highest gas taxes, highest income taxes, highest power costs. And what you're seeing is that a lot of people had all of these utopian ideas that they either had so much wealth to uh, to get around them, or to, even if they had to pay all of these taxes and astronomical uh, housing costs, they didn't really care because they were so wealthy. But it just it just hollowed out the middle class. And we had four million people leave, and then they thought that was great because they didn't like them, and they brought in people from Asia and Mexico many of them illegally. And the idea was, well, these people can serve us. They can cut our lawns, be our nannies, and then we're going to patronize them and say we're for open borders. But our own kids are going to go to these new prep schools along the California Coastal Corridor. And we're going to have, we don't want walls on the border, but we're going to have walls. We want to cut off water to farming, but not from Hetchetchy for domestic water for San Francisco. So that's what the, I think we have to remember that about socials. They're usually very wealthy people, and it's about power, and they never expect to have to suffer along with the people who's, uh, who's the result of their own policies. They have ways of getting around it, and they're very arrogant, and they, just, they always hate the middle class. And that's I, what California is. It's a war in the middle class. I noticed that your new governor, Gavin Newsom, is uh, planning a trip to El Salvador to try to address the refugee crisis where people are fleeing that failed state uh, from gang violence and government corruption and i i wondered why is he going to el salvador for that because the middle class refugees are fleeing california in droves because of gang violence and government corruption 
gang violence and government corruption is absolutely right. The California DMV has just admitted that uh, people were buying appointments and then selling. They were selling appointments for people because you can't get in there unless you have an appointment. They were those were on a market being sold. The DMV chief admitted that the illegal alien ballots were mixed with legal residents uh, for motor voter registration. And you know we have this. A hundred billion dollar fiasco called high speed rail that's been canceled for the most part, and you just it just goes on and on and on. And we had a vote harvesting that that really took seven congressional seats from Republicans who had won on election day. And so the whole the whole state's uh, rationale is that we are so moral and we're so committed to social justice and equality result the means necessary that end are, are justified, even if they're illegal or unethical. And that's the state. I mean, it, it's a beautiful state. It's one of the most beautiful place to grow up on that fifth generation. And I'm speaking from a, the same house that my great-great-grandmother built in 1870. And to see the state unwind, it's it's tragic. It makes you want to fight, but it also makes you want to leave. It's it's schizophrenic, the, the reaction to it. It truly is uh, tragic. The light out in California and the geography is just fabulous. And uh, it's a shame that... Um uh, that it's fallen into the hands of um, what appears to be, to me, at least, cultural Marxist. Dr. Yeah, Hansen. That's a good description. Of... Go ahead, sir. No, go ahead. Thank you for having me on today. I appreciate it. No, I, I very much appreciate your time. Victor Davis Hansen is author of the New York Times bestseller, The Case for Trump. You can get the book at walmart.com or in the stores. And this is really a must read for any thoughtful Trump supporter. Professor Hansen, thank you again so much for, for being with us and for this book, and I hope you'll come back and join us on right now. Yeah, I will. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, that was a great honor to have Victor Davis Hansen on the show, and um, as I said, I think he is probably the most insightful and thoughtful of um, of the writers today on how Donald Trump rose to be this black swan president and um, a, a real redeemer of the deplorables that so much of the elites and academia seem to uh, hold in contempt. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, what's the word, delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. 
Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details.